Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The text I'd like to focus our attention on this morning is found at the end of 1 Corinthians 4. We will take what has been, according to this study, a very large chunk of text this morning, and I will do my best to um, do justice to it. Paul has thus far in this letter been correcting the Corinthian church for their inflated view of themselves. They were acting inappropriately. They were blinded by their sin like we discussed last week, and they were living wrongly because of their pride, which is the way it always happens. We get a wrong view of things, either of the situation we're in or of ourselves, and that leads us to then act wrongly. And as we will see this morning, Paul reveals, even in a slightly comical way, the absurdity of the Corinthian believers' thinking. But as we press into the text, and as we let the text indeed press upon us, we will see how our thinking can be obscured, how we have blind spots. And how we can let the world and the devil lull us into a stupor of our own comfort and smugness that undermines the gospel and can destroy a church. And so let's begin this morning by reading our text. I'll start reading in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6 for context, and then we'll focus on verses 8 through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of our Lord. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have what you want. Already you've become rich. Already without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share in that reign with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To this present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and we're buffeted. We're pummeled and we're homeless. And we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will soon come if the Lord wills, and I will find out the talk of these arrogant people, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish then? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Thus ends the reading of God's word for us this morning. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we ask that you would give us a right view of ourselves, that we would not be puffed up in favor of one against another, that we would be humble, we would be reminded of who we are as disciples, 
as servants, indeed as slaves for Christ. We ask this in your son's precious name. Amen. We will examine our text this morning using three words, irony, imitation, and instruction. Irony, imitation, and instruction. Let's start by looking at verses 8 through 13 and see Paul's use of irony. Paul's use of irony. Paul's language in the beginning of this passage is overflowing with biting irony. He describes the Corinthians in ways that are over the top, even sarcastic, we might say, to reveal the fact that they have a huge blind spot. They've become smug, self-satisfied. They were prideful in their comfortable positions. The situation is similar to what God says to the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I have need of nothing, not realizing that you, Laodicea, are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The congregations in Laodicea and in Corinth had huge blind spots. They weren't seeing their position and their status rightly because they were blinded by their pride. And this warning isn't from Paul isn't just for a particular church in Greece 2,000 year, years ago. It's a warning for us as well. Church history is full of once thriving, effective, vibrant churches that are now gone. You won't find the church in Ephesus today, the one to whom Paul wrote his letter. And around the world, Satan must get great pleasure in seeing many once thriving church buildings are now museums or concert venues. Or even worse, you'll find some previously faithful congregations now explicitly denying the gospel in our houses of pagan worship. Did you know that you could pull up the website of Jonathan Edwards' church in Northampton, Massachusetts? One of the best theologians that America has produced. You pull up the website and you see rainbow flags and talk about great inclusivity. The church of Edwards now boasting of a damnable gospel proclaimed by woman filling Edwards' pulpit. And I could give you dozens of other examples of once thriving congregations that are now dazzlingly corrupted. But the implosion of churches like that one don't happen overnight. It can happen in the course of a single generation. And history warns us. No church is immune to this arrogant wandering. No church is immune to having blind spots. And we need to be careful. Morning view needs to be careful. That's the danger that the Corinthian church was in. And now let's jump in and see exactly what Paul's saying. He says in verse 8, Already you have what you want. Already you're rich. Indeed, without us, you're beginning to reign as kings. Oh, that we might share in such a reign. His language is not merely sarcastic. It's almost satirical. He's using wonderfully incisive but dangerous tool of sarcasm to expose, to reveal the insanity of what they're doing. And what is it that they're doing? They're acting like they had arrived. They're acting as if they were already having heaven here on earth. They're acting as if they were possessing heavenly wisdom and that they were above any and all suffering in this age. They had it all figured out. They were the strong ones. They were the ones feasting. They were above the fray and the strife and the pain of life. They were kings. But Paul chides them by reminding them of their position and of his position. Paul was a fool. The apostles were weak. He was starving. He was slaving away with his hands. He even says that he's like a man headed to the arena. 
which is language that the Corinthians knew very well. You see, when a Roman general would return victoriously in battle, he would enter town through a new glorious arch that was constructed. It was decorated with beautiful garlands. There would be a giant parade with musicians and dancers and all sorts of fanfare. And the general would ride in first in the place of honor, the place that the Corinthians thought they enjoyed. And then behind him would be the colonels and the lieutenants and the infantry and the rest of the soldiers carrying all the spoils of war. And then what remained of the defeated army would be marched in in chains and humiliated behind them. And then finally, at the end of the line, were the lowest. The slaves whom everybody knew without saying a word were destined to death inside of the Colosseum, inside of the arena where they would face the lions and the gladiators. That's what Paul compares himself to. Somebody destined to die as worthless in the eyes of the world. That's why he says, I'm the scum of the earth, that he calls himself, at least in their eyes. The blind spot of the Corinthians was that they considered such a position, such a status as beneath them. And Paul challenges their thinking by saying that such a lowly position in the eyes of the world is exactly what the Christian life is about. The Corinthian church was in danger, and Morning View is in danger of thinking that we have arrived. We are above the fray. We're so holy, we're so comfortable, we're so rich that we're the kings. And when we do that, we not only, not only deceive ourselves, but we obscure the gospel. We cover it up. We combine it and smash it together with the American dream and risk losing them both. And we can make people feel like they don't fit in here. And therefore, the gospel must not be for them. So if I'm an outsider, and I am really struggling with sin, and I'm really suffering in this life, and I walk into Morning View, what do I see? Do I see a congregation of once lost sinners who humbly know that every bit of what they have is received by grace and a gift from God alone? Or do I see a congregation that's so polished, so proper, that they could never relate to me in my suffering and my sin? Do I see a congregation of smug triumphalists who think they have it all together, who don't see their blind spots right in front of their face, and who could never therefore relate to me? We need to be warned by Paul's words. We need to consider our ways, consider our humility, or consider our pride. Indeed, that leads neatly to Paul's next exhortation, which is my second point, Paul's call to imitate him. Paul's call to imitate him, particularly in his suffering. Look again at verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. Paul's appealing to them as their spiritual father, the one who saw them come to faith, who brought the gospel to them initially. And he gives to his spiritual children a humble reminder of his position, of his status as being worthy of imitation because he's suffering for Christ. You see, they were disdaining Paul. They were discounting him because of his suffering. He's working with his hands. That's work for slaves. That's not for us. 
That's what the Greek world would have thought, and that's what the Corinthians were likely saying among themselves. They were disdaining Paul for his poverty. The fact that he was generously giving away things rather than keeping some for himself. But the call to Christ is instead a call to suffer. A call to pick up our own cross. A call to join Christ in his sufferings. Paul's reminding them again of the word, of the message of the gospel. The word that the world believes is folly. Go back to chapter 1. It's as if Paul is saying to the Corinthians, remember back to what you know. Remember what Isaiah said about our Savior. He's not a glorious king in the sense of the world. He's a suffering servant. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with great suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. Isaiah 53, 2 and 3. It's as if Paul is saying, Who am I? Which of us is more like Christ? Which of us is more like the suffering servant? You who are ruling as kings or me, suffering. Paul later testifies to the Philippians that he wants to experience not only the power of Christ's resurrection, but also the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Philippians 3.10. Indeed, he later writes to the Romans that believers are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Romans 8, 17. Thus, if Paul insists he's a model for others, if he's telling others, imitate me, it's only because he sees himself as following the example of Christ. And so to summarize, Paul's theology informing his understanding of suffering is guided by a few key points. First of which, we follow a suffering Messiah. All of the future promises of reigning and of ruling, promises of new heavens and new earth, do not negate the necessary fact that as we proclaim the good news of the gospel, we are called to be fools in the eyes of the world. We're called to suffer in the eyes of the world for the sake of Christ to take up our cross until the end of the age, to daily die to our own self-interest, to die to our own desires in order that we can faithfully follow our suffering servant. There's no other way to follow Jesus because to imitate Jesus and to imitate Paul is to imitate them even in suffering. Secondly, this call to suffering in this passage is especially a call for the leaders to suffer. Christian leaders are not like the generals of this world who ride in the front of the parade and get all the glory, who call the shots from behind the safety of the front lines. Rather, Christian leaders are called to lead the charge by being the front line people. They're the tip of the spear. They lead by example as much as by word. And to praise a form of leadership that despises suffering is therefore to deny the basic understanding of the Christian life. Third principle we can draw from Paul's understanding of suffering is that all Christians are called to this vision of a suffering life and a suffering view of discipleship. That's why Paul says, uh, he sent Timothy in verse 17 to remind them, that's the Corinthian believers, of my way of life in Christ Jesus. Paul's call to imitation is for every believer. And it's a call 
that discipleship entails suffering. We must recognize that this view of the Christian life is foreign to much of our world today and much of the church today. Many people would hear what I'm saying and say, be quiet, you're going to push people away. They don't want to hear a gospel about suffering. They don't want to hear about costliness. We don't like to suffer. We want to avoid it at all costs. We want to medicate suffering and ignore it or distract ourselves from it and act as if it's not there. We want lives that are generally comfortable. You see, we we tend to have that, and that's a danger for us. We have decent medical care. We don't often, if ever, worry about our safety or about where our next meal is coming from. We don't live in fear of our lives being taken from us. And because of these blessings, we can be tempted to think we are arrived, that we are kings. We slipped into the Corinthian mindset of the already uh, heavenly promised blessings being brought already to us. In short, we act like the world is our home. But Paul's words remind us of who we are to follow. If the, if the world crucified our master, will they not do the same to us? If Christ suffered, why do we expect any better? But that's exactly the message that we need to hear. The message of the gospel that Christ came and he suffered. He was mocked and ridiculed in our place and yet he remained faithful. He was poor and meek and yet he was elevated to the place of honor by his father. He was whipped and beaten for our sins so that we can be spared the death that we deserved. We in our pride think that we have arrived, that we don't have anything to learn, but Hebrews 5 reminds us that Christ learned obedience through his sufferings. He learned because we were too prideful to listen and to obey. He suffered because we were unwilling to suffer. He endured pain because we were too busy inflicting pain on others through our sin. And because he was a faithful son, faithful to suffer, faithful to become despised by the world, we have been granted forgiveness and life. We can come merely by faith and taste of these rewards. We can have the blessing of eternal life if we would imitate him. If we would come and simply by faith believe his message, the foolish message of the cross, and become despised by the world. If we would but imitate him, we too can have all things. We can have life and honor and glory, but we must first die to ourselves and trust in him. Have you imitated Christ, our suffering servant? Have you renounced your pride and become a fool in the eyes of the world and submitted yourself to a life of suffering for his sake? If you have, then don't fall for the Corinthian temptation to believe that suffering is somehow beneath you or strangely foreign to a faithful Christian's life. Resolve again to suffer for the sake of Christ, to die to yourself and to your desires and to your comfort so that Christ might be made all in all by your life. And if you have not yet come to Christ, then hear of the message of this suffering servant. Hear of his love, how he came to die in the place of sinners who cared only about their comfort. He came to suffer for those who sought their own glory. He became nothing so that in him we might have all things. Come and believe and take on his yoke, which is light, he says, but comes with inevitable suffering knowing that the yoke of suffering in this age will become for you a crown of glory in the next. Because if you remain in your stubbornness, if you retain your prideful position of judge over Christ, 
then you will see that your arrogant despising of Christ earns for you an eternal weight of judgment in hell. Do not wait any longer. Hear this message of the cross, which the world considers foolish and contemptible, but once embraced by faith, will be for you a path of life and glory. Imitate Him, and in, in, and in, in imitating Him, you too will share in His eternal rewards. Third, and finally, we've seen Paul's use of irony and Paul's call for imitation. Now let's look at verses 18 to 21 and see Paul's instruction. Paul's instruction to his children. His instruction is twofold for us. He instructs us towards humility and by his faithful example. Let's look at verse 18. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? In most institutions in this fallen world, there's usually a small group of people who exert a disproportionately large influence over the rest. And it seems like that's what's going on in Corinth. Some of the troublemakers in Corinth were apparently arguing that Paul is so bold and powerful in his letters, that is when he's away, but when he's here, he's meek and timid. He's nothing. We know that interpretation from what he says in 2 Corinthians 10. These arrogant ones were assuming the position of self-appointed judges and were messing up the works in Paul's absence. They were banking on Paul not coming back, but Paul is coming back, he says, to translate it literally, so that he could find out not the word of these arrogant people, but their power. And to understand this threat, we need to remember the situation. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul explains how they had become enamored with the wisdom of words, words which empty the cross of its power. They were intoxicated with a form of speech and rhetoric that flaunted its eloquence and which had become more important to them than the gospel itself. But when Paul comes, he won't care about their flashy rhetoric. He wants to know what power they really have. Which we know from earlier texts is actually nothing. They have no power. Their eloquence has no power to change, no power to forgive, no power to transform men and women from wretched sinners into saints of God. Winsome rhetoric never won a single soul from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Their pride and their own ability should instead be humble gratitude that God has chosen to do anything through them with their gifts. See, mere talk won't change people. Only the gospel can do that. And so Paul is asking them for their credentials, saying, What people have been born again by your eloquence? How many people have been saved by your wonderful preaching and your savvy speech? Paul's going to expose them for the empty religious windbags that they are, to quote D.A. Carson. And contrary to this empty speech, Paul is going to come with power. Not innate power, not like he's a magical or wonderful person, but the power of the gospel. And here we find another instructive example, an example for us that's worthy of our imitation. Paul's going to come and to preach a consistent Christian message of the gospel, the gospel of a suffering Messiah dying in the place of sinners. And his mission is so important that he will not swerve from his goal. 
He will encourage and admonish the arrogant Corinthians. And if severer discipline is necessary, he will not flinch from his mission. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with a love, a spirit of love and gentleness? And he doesn't mean that when he comes with a rod, he doesn't love them. The contrast is not referring to differing motives, but the manner in which he comes, the form in which he's coming. Spankings are painful, even from a father who loves his children, but it's much better for the son to change his behavior so that the father can then come not with painful corrective discipline, but rather in a spirit of gentleness. And so the instruction in his example for us is clear. Christian leaders of any type are called to faithfulness in correction, even if it's unpleasant. Indeed, it's connected to the call for suffering mentioned in the earlier chapter. Christian leaders of every kind, not just pastors, but especially pastors, leaders as parents, Indeed, as church members are called to be vigilant in their responsibility to lead the people of God to live as they should. That's why Paul will tell the Ephesians to live a life worthy of the calling that they've received. He tells the Colossians to live a life worthy of the Lord, the crucified Messiah. And if the people of God dig in their heels in disobedience, there may come a time for Christian leaders to admonish, to rebuke, to perhaps even discipline firmly those who take the name of Christ, but do not care to follow him. Indeed, that's where he's going in chapter 5, church discipline. Those sterner steps must never be taken hastily or lightly, but sometimes they must be taken, and that's part of the responsibility for Christian leadership. And so the application for us is clear. As leaders, are we taking our role seriously? Are we willing to have unpleasant conversations, to gently rebuke or admonish when needed? for the sake of the good of the brothers and sisters? Or how about as parents? Are we faithful to warn our children, to even apply corrective discipline if sinful behavior remains? As a church, Morning View, are we mature enough to love, even up to church discipline and excommunication, when someone claims the name of Christ but will not reject worldly behavior? We must resolve to lead and to train and to encourage and to rebuke and to admonish and even to discipline those whom we love. That's what a loving father does. A loving father doesn't let his children in the faith run down the path that leads to their eventual destruction. He warns, he pleads, he beckons, he even acts to correct. That's Paul's example, and that's ours to imitate. But we don't often want to imitate him in this way. We can find ourselves either too lazy or too comfortable to bother with the hard work of being faithful in this kind of discipleship. Or perhaps we're fearful, fearful of having a hard conversation or of giving a necessary rebuke. But praise be to God that Christ was faithful in our place. He wasn't an idle bridegroom who let his bride continue down the path of sin and death. He rose and he acted, he came and he took on the uncomfortable life of obedience for the good of his bride. He didn't first come with a rod, though. He first came and suffered the rod, the rod that we had all deserved. He bore the death that each one of us had earned, and he took the punishment that all mankind had earned, and he carried it to the cross. He died as if he were the unrepentant son who willingly and stubbornly chose sin rather than righteousness. 
And because he willingly bore that suffering, we can be forgiven. We can be washed of our laziness and of our inaction. We can be cleansed of our selfishness and our fear. That's the gospel that shows us his love and also that makes us lovely and propels us to act out of love for the sake of others. If Christ was willing to do so much that we can be made right, how could we not lovingly act to correct others in the same kinds of sins? He was willing to bear our discipline, our our sentence of death. And how could we not be willing to rescue others from the path of sin and death? May we be ever willing to do the hard work of lovingly warning and correcting others. Properly and humbly, of course, as Scripture directs us. But for their good and out of love to God. For He is the one who's brought us where we are. And if you're still stubborn... If you're hearing this message and refusing to listen to the gospel, then hear in Paul's warning, the warning of Christ himself. Christ is speaking to you right now through his word. He's warning you to humble yourself and submit yourself to him. But if you will not hear his words now, then know that Christ will come and he's not going to send Timothy in his place like Paul was doing. And he will come not merely with a rod of discipline. Scripture says that he will come with a sword of judgment. He will return and He will judge all of those who rejected His offer of salvation. Do not wait until it's too late, until the final day of judgment. Come this day, today, and believe. Any sinner is welcome to come. None of you is too far gone. None of you is too prideful. None of you is too stubborn. Christ can forgive any and all that would come to Him. Trust in Christ this day and hear His message of the cross. How He was willing to be the suffering servant in the place of His people. How He willingly bore the discipline that His unfaithful children had earned. Know this Christ. Trust in Him and be made one with Him. Lest He come not in a spirit of gentleness, but come to you in a spirit of judgment. Amen. We get to conclude this morning with a visual reminder that the rod of discipline has been borne by Christ in the place of His people. He bore the full wrath of God on the cross for the sins of his bride. His body and his blood, his body was broken and his blood was shed for his people to be forgiven. Christ was treated as a sinful criminal so that we might be treated as a righteous son. He was disciplined so that we might be declared not guilty. And he was faithful so that we might be made the same. The table of the Lord is for all those who trust in Jesus Christ, who have taken on the call of the cross, the call of suffering. If you're like the disciples in Acts 2, devoted to the apostles' teaching now found in God's Word, devoted to fellowship and to prayer and the breaking of bread with God's people, then we invite you to come and join us at the table. But if you have not yet come to Christ, then let the plates pass. Trust in Christ first. Be baptized, and then you may join us at the table. I will pray, and then our table servants will come. Holy Father, we praise you and thank you for the sacrifice of Christ in our place, that he suffered willingly that we might be saved. Lord, we thank you for this picture of the gospel that we have before us. We ask that you would set it apart, that that you would sanctify it, that you would use it to make us holy by faith in the gospel pictured therein. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.